0: Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut and join us for our weekly analysis of tech news. We've got stories on Juniper, Microsoft, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. They're establishing the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE. The SASE Converge 2021 is taking place September 28th and 29th. It's the first of its kind event bringing together thought leaders and industry veterans to discuss past, present, and future trends shaping networking and security. Speakers include Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO Nir Zook and Martin Casado. He's an SDN pioneer and founder of NYSERA, which was later acquired by VMware. Visit sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com
1: to register today. We hope to see you there. Uh, speaking hey, hey, of- hey, hey. It says thought leaders, but we're not there. <laughs> <laughs> what is that saying?
0: <laughs> I think we can read between the lines.
1: I think we can. I, I know what I'm
0: thinking. Aren't you a thought lord anyway, not a thought leader? A uh, thought emperor, thank you. Oh. Thought lord or thought emperor, you may call me. Your worshipness. And stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia, talking about building a data center fabric with EVPN.
1: Yeah, so I think there's two things here. One of this is that uh, I'm becoming convinced that the future of events is these short one to two hours, maybe up to four hours events. And the idea that we would go to conferences is probably fading off into ancient history. And uh, so we're sort of testing out some ideas and the live stream is one of our ideas to create short events that you want to listen to. And hopefully you would want to come along to the Glueware live stream and participate. It's one hour and it's in six, 10 minute sessions. It's not one hour of boredom. It's much more like this, 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 this. So hopefully you'll come along and join us for that live stream. If you go to packapushesnet slash live stream and Glueware is a pretty good company. They uh, really have an interesting product that I am quite fond of. And so maybe you'd be interested in finding out what makes me think that.
0: Yep. Network automation. Check it out. All right. uh, Before we hit the news, let's dive into some FU, some follow-up. Last week, Craig, you and I went on about a blog from Facebook detailing its data center redesign. Turns out the post was from 2019, not 2021. So that's our goof. (laughs) And thanks to a listener, Javier, for paying closer attention than we did and letting us know.
1: Yeah. A couple of other people pinged me on that as well on on Twitter. Um, I didn't notice. I actually saw this referred to in an article on another site and didn't, and it was, so the source article where I found it, which referred me after this, was modern, but I actually didn't notice that it was referring me to a two-year-old article. So I do apologize. Um, easy to miss when you're putting together 10 to 20 articles a week. So.
0: Right. But we will make an effort to look at the date at the top of the pieces before we
1: yes, dive in. Yes, I'll refresh efforts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and thanks for letting us know. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, We also got a second uh, follow-up about Arista. I guess, Greg, maybe you had made comments uh, that if Arista was going to take routing seriously, they'd participate in EANTC uh, uh, interoperability testing. And the short answer is yes, Arista does participate in that uh, interoperability testing.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to quote Arista Executive because I didn't get permission to quote their name. Uh, and I think in a podcast which was sponsored, uh, I'm not 100% sure where we were talking about this. It, did we discuss EANC? Um, I think it was in a tech bite.
0: It was in a tech bite
1: probably tech after break, yeah. Uh, So rather than and and maybe I sort of created that opinion and I was of that opinion because I was told by other people that that was what was happening or maybe I misinterpreted the situation, but in either way, I apologize unreservedly uh, and uh, making good on that promise here. Uh, Arista tells me that they, and this is a senior executive who says they definitely do participate in the ANTCC testing. So there you go. Now you know it's not that Arista isn't participating. It is participating along with all the other vendors and testing their EVPN interoperability in a viable format and learning hopefully before customers do, although the evidence suggests that some vendors aren't learning before customers find out that their implementations aren't compatible. Right.
0: All right, third and final, FU, uh, we have a regular listener of Network Break uh, who feels like uh, one of the hosts, and he puts this in parentheses, you know who has a permanent bias against Cisco? (laughs) I
1: think that would be you, Greg. (laughs) I think so, and that's because I'm probably the only person in publicly speaking out against vendors and then naming them uh, on things. Now, there is a few different issues coming down here, and the answer here is that without a doubt I get more feedback here about Cisco quality issues than any other vendor. Now, for whatever reason, the feedback that I get, because I'm no longer a practitioner, but when I was a practitioner and somebody who didn't work, most of my career was spent supervising people working on Cisco and I was working on specific other products, my first, Um, my primary work was building um, high security clustered gateways uh, and focusing on specific technologies and supervising people doing the networking side. And without a doubt, for the 20 years that I was a professional engineer, Cisco was the worst vendor for product quality over that timeframe. Now, I put that down to two issues. One is people use Cisco more, so you tend to just run into more problems. So as a percentage, even if Cisco is the same as other vendors because you generally have more Cisco equipment in a network because it's a switch or a router. But those products are common. They shouldn't have bugs by now, right? So I'm not going to defend Cisco here. I do think Cisco does a poor job of maintaining Cisco product quality. And over a very long period of time, that has been a consistent story. In theory, products should not have bugs 30 years into the development cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then one of the things that I'm noting increasingly now is that Cisco does not handle tech support well. That is, people are consistently complaining that when they have a tech support or when they have a bug, Cisco does not accept the bug report, takes a long time to respond to the bug report or to take a long time to fix the bug. And maybe it's not so much that there are consistent product quality problems, but that Cisco is going through a transition internally. I know for a fact that many of the vendors, but Cisco especially, is reorganizing its TAC. It's uh, shut down operations in Sydney, San Jose, uh, various other towns in the US. Most of the European operations have been closed. And my understanding is, and I may be wrong, is that most of this has been moved to India and Indonesia and places like that. And if that's the case, that transition would create disruption to the services. And maybe Cisco needs to retrain and to reskill and to fix the issues that arise when you make those transitions. But either way, that's where I stand on that particular issue. And the final point I would make is I'm often told by people who just have one company that they don't see Cisco as worse than other vendors. I accept that that's your perception. I'm not saying that that's not true but if you talk to reseller engineers who work off the record who handle many vendors they will confirm to you what i've just said that is working with cisco is the most difficult vendor for them cisco is persistent in having more issues and is also less likely to fix them promptly or well in a reasonable time frame compared to other vendors uh, that's just an observation you know cisco is a big company it can always be distorted by The number of products and creates a perception, or it can be distorted by the fact that Cisco's uh, chain of service is very weak. It's very long. So Cisco has uh, developers, and then it has product managers, and then it has tech support, and then it has resellers in the middle. It has various outsourced components, and a lot of those can easily break down. And that may be contributing to my perception that Cisco is not performing at a level that most people would uh, feel successful so that's where i my angle on that take is if you want to if you accept that i hope you do all
0: right we appreciate all of the corrections the follow-up the feedback if you want to give us your corrections follow-up or feedback that's all at pack slash fu uh, and you can be anonymous if you like we appreciate hearing from you all right let's get into some actual news where we can make some more mistakes Juniper Networks has announced a new campus fabric offering. It's using the Juniper Mist Cloud to help deploy and manage the fabric. Juniper's positioning this as a competitor to other campus fabric options, particularly Cisco's DNA Center.
1: So the pivot to the enterprise continues. We've talked about this extensively. We started talking about two years ago that Juniper was coming back to the enterprise. Um, The service provider market was either zero growth or um, going through a different sort of a transition and Juniper sees growth in other markets and particularly the, the enterprise, they've doing the data center. So the return to the campus is probably overdue. You did more on this, but this really feels like they're going straight on at the software defined uh, campus network. This idea that the you need an overlay and you need a software controller to make all that go. Yeah.
0: They're using EVP and VXLAN to build the fabric in the campus uh, and the idea is that you essentially pick from four basic designs. There's like a, a two-tier design, a three-tier access distribution core design, or a least spine CLO design. Uh, it's using Juniper EX and QX switches, though in some designs uh, you can have third-party L2 switches at the access layer, so it doesn't have to all be Juniper. But the essential idea is that you decide what topology you're going to use. You decide what role each of the switches in the topology is going to have. You set up your basic segmentation rules like this VLAN for users, this VLAN for IoT, etc., and then rack the, the switches, uh, scan them with a the QR code, and then the Mist cloud will automatically configure them for you and get you up and running and handle the overlay and the underlay for you. Uh, mm. And it's, again, positioning against Cisco's DNA center with that sort of easy, automated uh, campus fabric network.
1: Is it against DNA center or the SD campus technology? Because Cisco isn't just doing SDN of the campus using overlays. It's also attaching um, access control and using ML to do fingerprinting of apps flowing through the network so it can look for malware. It's also using the same technology to classify and do micro-segmentation, dynamic micro-segmentation. Is Juniper still got that coming or is that or is that something that's in the part they are announcing now?
0: I would say that if Juniper's response to that would be, you know, if you've also bought into our missed YLAN, we can probably do some of that device identification and enforcement on that. Um, this... Uh, the, what they're talking about now with the EVPN VXLAN is essentially, you know, one to being able to do multi-homing and more uh, tighter segmentation of the network, uh, more VLANs, and just that ease of of having a fabric and not having to worry about spanning tree.
1: Yeah, I like the I like the EVPN. This idea that I can use the same overlay network in the WAN, in the data center, in the campus, and the Wi and the wired and wireless campus that makes sense to me in lots of ways. That idea that you would have, you know, LISP in the campus, which is where Cisco works, and then you have um, a completely different sort of ACI EVPN, not very open, not very interoperable, and you have to define the edges and then try and connect them together with routing protocols, and then the WAN tech. So the Cisco solution reflects its internal architecture. There's the WAN, you know the SD WAN, there's the campus, there's the data center, and they don't actually interoperate right n- like natively. I'm sure they're working on it. I, I feel confident that Cisco recognizes that as a weakness in their products. But um, I think Juniper's got a better story to tell here if they actually said, we just have one network. We've got specific hardware for the data center, specific hardware for the campus, specific hardware for the WAN, but it's all one network and we don't need to have different software controllers and different licensing schemes and different you know, operational procedures for different parts. It's all just one thing. I think that would be a strength. Did they talk about that?
0: they did talk about that they also mentioned that well part of this is all about mist um they have this mist wired assurance which is essentially if you've got juniper switches they're sending telemetry up to the mist ai cloud to do analysis uh to watch for anomalies they can um, do some automated remediation if you trust the the ai enough Uh, so it's all about not just deploying it but also that ease of operations that you get from an automated system using
1: ml and ai Mm. Yeah, they're going to lean hard into that story. The Mist has been very successful for them and they've made a long term pitch around Mist as, you know, taking the data from your network and then telling you where the problems are dynamically started in the wireless, but that was the obvious place to start. Right. And so there's some credibility to that. Obviously your own situation will depend a little, but yeah viable i think
0: i'm curious to see what happens with this uh, but speaking of mist um juniper also has the marvis virtual assistant uh, and they announced some new automation capabilities with this marvis virtual assistant it can detect things like bad ap cables wireless coverage holes dns and arp anomaly detection and then again if you trust the ai it can do some automated remediation
1: yeah which i think is all about reducing the operational load a lot of the campus stuff is about reducing the operational load of all these things. And this is where SDN and the campus, you know, this idea of dynamic micro segmentation, Hey, I fingerprint that that's a printer. I'll put it into this segment. Hey, I see that. I know that I recognize that as building management, I'll dynamically add that to a, a different micro segment and, and so on and so forth. Right. And then it, all the data is, is transferred around and, and routed and all that sort of stuff for you. And doing that manually is, becoming deeply impractical partly because EVPN overlays are so complicated um, and so difficult to configure that you can't actually manually do them in the old days with VLANs you would just say this port this VLAN micro segmentation done oh good <laughs> you know, that, sort of that doesn't work when it, you know in the new environment where things are much more complicated.
0: Yeah, so if you want more details, uh, Juniper did present about this at a recent network field day, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to see the video where they walk through what they're doing, what they're up to. All right, we'll move on. Uh, the global SD-WAN market grew 39% over the first half of 2021 compared to the same period last year. That's according to a new report from Del Oro. Uh, Cisco topped the list in terms of re- uh, vendor revenue, followed by Fortinet, VMware, Versa, and HPE Aruba.
1: Yeah, um... I think the interesting part here is is that SD WAN growth grew thirty nine percent, but it actually comes off such a low base. Like I think the research sort of indicates that you know less than ten percent of customers or fifteen percent of customers have SD WAN. Mm-hmm. So thirty nine percent growth is modest at best, if you know what I'm saying. Um, but I'd like to see SD WAN everywhere. I really feel strongly that SD WAN is something for. Is something that really changes the needle on networking. And in particular that for getting to the cloud, SD-WAN is almost mandatory. If you've got services moving to the cloud, you pretty much have to have an SD-WAN to make that work in some way or another to get enough bandwidth because the cloud services use more bandwidth, not less. And shunting them over MPLS connections might fit your internal business model, but it doesn't solve the, the the need for more bandwidth. So unless you're lucky enough to all be located in an area of high bandwidth on the traditional network. So I think the other thing too here is that the patterns repeat, like business patterns or market patterns. Uh, we talk in technology as winner takes most, um, but that doesn't seem to be happening here. Remember we talked about SD-WAN and talked about so many vendors and how they managed to survive and. The winner takes most doesn't seem to be happening here. Six Top six vendors got 70% of revenue, but that leaves 30%, which is a substantial market share for the rest. Right. And we've
0: been watching the SD-WAN market sort of start to consolidate with big vendors snapping up the smaller ones, but there's still a large number of companies out there. So, yeah, it is a lot of revenue spread across a lot of companies. Yeah. I don't know that one vendor has emerged a la Cisco, say, you know, in the switching or routing market where they're like earning 60, 50% of the market share. It's pretty well, it's more distributed.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think even amongst the top six, it's not like, you know, Cisco and Palo Alto have, you know, 60% of the market. And right. then the next four have 10. It's very evenly split. Cisco hasn't managed to dominate this much. It's probably the most substantial SD-WAN vendor, but I don't think it's the only SD-WAN vendor. Like no, it doesn't dominate like it has in other market segments. The the Viptela product has a couple, of, a couple of false starts, took a long time for them to transition. They they brought the Viptela product in and then told everybody it was going to be in routers and then took three years to get the code into routers and then turned around and said, we'll buy these Viptela appliances until we get it into the routers. And customers went, well, we'll, we'll wait. You know, not the, the transition wasn't, handled as well as it might've been. Um, and that left room for other vendors to go along. And then of course, SASE came along and changed the whole idea of what SD-WAN would be. And now SD-WAN has security built in. And so I sort of feel like other vendors have been able to get out in front, adding new features that custom, that most customers want uh, once they realize what they're available. And certainly we've seen the emergence of what was traditionally firewall vendors, Palo Alto, Fortinet, for example, um, Come out and uh, and take a, a leading position in SD-WAN because they're saying it, SD-WAN isn't about WAN; it's about security first, right. and then solving the WAN problem at the same time. Yeah,
0: right. We're definitely seeing a, a new emphasis in the SD-WAN market on security, and it is tying into SASE. And I think those markets are going to start to sort of get all globbed together.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't see a difference between SASE and SD-WAN. I think it's all one thing. <laughs>
0: All right, we have the link to the uh, article if you want to check it out. We'll move on. A Google Project X company called Tara is touting a wireless optical project. It's bridging internet connectivity between two African countries across the Congo River using free space optics.
1: Ah, everything old is new again in that category. <laughs> uh, I did uh, some, What they, it's called free space optics, which is basically pointing two lasers to each other and then encoding a network signal over the lasers. And so there's a couple of things about Um, doing free space optics is, and the hardest one, is focusing the laser beams to hit each other. Uh And uh, the lesson that I learned is if you put them on top of 20-, 30-storey buildings, the buildings move and the beams actually fall out of alignment in high winds. Um, And so what they're actually doing here is they actually put the uh, lasers on gimbals and they can actually focus to to each other. So they shoot a tiny laser about the size of a pencil, but they have a 5-centimeter retreat uh receiver so that if there's movement they don't fall out of alignment quite so easily so um, the article goes on and talks about a few different things here they talk about pointing a light being the width of a chopstick accurately enough to hit a five centimeter target that's 10 kilometers away that is actually quite difficult Um, but they're also doing things like adjusting the laser power we're transmitting and the encoding or they call it how we're processing bits on the fly so that the reliability of the data transfer is improved. What used to happen in the old days was you just fire it on a standard thing, and if the link quality degraded, at some point the link quality got so bad that this just stopped transmitting. But we know from, say, video transmission, that if your bandwidth degrades, you could just slow down the signal transmission and use a different encoding mechanism and get better. And it sounds like these are the sorts of things that they're doing. And as they point out here is that these free space optics are really useful because... The river between the two towns, Brazzaville and Kinshasa, are actually only five kilometres apart, but you can't actually dig a fibre in because the river is so deep and so wide that the cable would just get washed away. There's no way to practically dig a fibre through. And so the connection would have to go 400 kilometres till they find a crossing point. So really, just interesting to think of, Uh, and if you haven't, I wrote a post many years ago you might want to have a look at, where I outline some of the issues around free space optics and what design thinking you should be coming up with.
0: Yeah, it is, uh, I think, a fascinating way to, for use cases like, you know, trying to get fiber across a river, very impractical in some cases. So free space optics could be the answer. Mm. Right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They're raising the bar in cloud-delivered networking and security by establishing the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE, or Secure Access Services Edge. It's the SASE Converge 2021. It's happening September 28th and 29th. This first-of-a-kind event brings together thought leaders and industry veterans. They're going to discuss past, present, and future trends. Speakers include Nir Zuck. He is the Palo Alto Networks founder and CTO. They've also got Gartner's VP and distinguished analyst and one of the founding fathers of SASE, Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado, who you will all know as the early pioneer in the development of OpenFlow, the founder of Nicira before it was acquired by VMware. Throughout the conference, there's gonna be technical deep dive sessions, product demos, and more. This is SASE Converge 2021. It's the premier virtual summit. You don't wanna miss it. Go to sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register today. That's sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com to register today. They hope to see you there. All right, back to the news. Security researchers are warning Azure customers about a vulnerability in the open management infrastructure agent that gets loaded with Linux VMs being used in the Azure Cloud or on prem. The vulnerabilities enable privilege escalation and remote code execution. Microsoft has released fixes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is interesting in the sense that um, you don't see a lot of vulnerabilities announced around public cloud services. And one of the things that I've learned as a result of doing the research for this is that apparently public cloud services don't allow security professionals to actually attack their platforms to find vulnerabilities. And what they've discovered here is that the actual container runtimes that sit behind Microsoft's Azure product are actually very old probably four or five years old, with a bunch of known vulnerabilities. But until you actually know what the code is, you can't necessarily fingerprint them or find them. And they've got some patches in and some patches that are not. And then they discovered that the orchestration software that sits over the top of those containers is equally old and has a number of known vulnerabilities. And so what Wiz was able to do was able to get in there, work out or fingerprint the containers, and then hack its way through a bunch of vulnerabilities until it cracked it open. And I think this challenges this idea that the cloud is secure because it's not provably secure, right?
0: Well, that's always been the debate. Is the cloud more secure Mm -hmm. than on-prem? And I think the issue is nothing is entirely secure. It's just a question of, you know, your risk posture and how much work you could do to secure your own infrastructure versus what a cloud provider could do.
1: Well, what we're finding is that the infrastructure that the cloud companies run, they make big claims about, you know, no, actually, it's not so much the the cloud companies themselves. It's the ecosystem around it, saying like, "Oh, the cloud companies can afford to hire the best security professionals, and they have larger teams than you can have." But what it turns out is is that the business inside doesn't necessarily let those security professionals do anything. They don't necessarily just like inside of an enterprise. They don't. The security professionals might say, "You desperately need to update this container runtime," and they go like. Yeah, but we can't because we've now got 10 billion container instances. And if we updated the code, right, they've got the same problem that enterprises have. Right, right. Right. (laughs) So um, increasingly, I think what we'll see is that the cloud is secure or the cloud is more secure than enterprise IT. I think we're going to see that challenged going forward. And this is sort of like the, the early signs of this. We've seen a few different things go on where the clouds have had major problems. Obviously, of course, with you know people leaving databases open for hacking or sharing data stores and leaving them open to the internet is one angle. But this is another one where the actual infrastructure, and, and you just can't find these things out because you can't go to Azure and say, what version of container code are you running? And then look at the current code and say, well, that's got these known vulnerabilities, How have you patched them? And they go, they just won't let you. And even if you're a penetration, like if you're a security professional that's conducting an audit or a review, you are not permitted to do so under the terms and conditions. So as a customer of Azure, you are not permitted to hire pen testers to attack your infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? That is not allowed. And if, if you do get pen testers that get special permission from Azure to do so, they are contractually brown to not discuss the results of the audit all the review or penetration tests in public of course. and what they can do is pre- strictly prescribed so you're actually not doing a penetration test you're only doing what you're allowed to do which is the same as what everybody else is testing so you don't actually what you find is exactly what you what you expect to find it's secure because somebody's already found it but it's the gray it's the untested the un unordered areas that are the ones that are gonna we're gonna see bugs in going forward
0: so. Part of the issue, so this OMI, the Open Management Infrastructure Agent uh, that gets loaded, is an open source project, and Microsoft is involved with it, but there's lots and lots and lots of open source software being used in these cloud companies, some of which is well-supported, some of which is not so well-supported, and that means a mm. lot more potential vulnerabilities and targets for researchers and attackers.
1: Yes, and the and the reason that we have had fairly few so far is that penetration testers are prevented from, you know, how the the hackers like to, you know, like a bunch of teenagers, oh, I found a hole in your security. Ha ha. Give it a fancy name, create a website and get all, you know, act like a bunch of spoiled kids on the internet, you know, with the, the names of vulnerabilities and so forth. But in this case, if they release anything that they find on the cloud providers, AWS, Google, Azure, they actually are subject to legal suits. They're not permitted to do this. So the only way that this company, Wiz, was able to go public on this was they did it without breaching any of Microsoft's restrictions. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they didn't attack the site. Right. I'm
0: sure they worked with Microsoft on responsible disclosure as well.
1: On the response, yes. But they discovered it just by, you know, not breach, they didn't have to do a pen test. They didn't have to attack. They just made certain realizations and they were able to bypass the controls. It turns out Microsoft's infrastructure is years old and fundamentally unsafe.
0: Yeah. And the same security research group, they're called Wiz. They discovered problems with Azure's Cosmo database service, uh, which I think was also related to an open source package. Uh, We discussed that back in show 349. Uh, Mm -hmm. Wiz is having a good time hitting Azure
1: and getting some promotion out of it. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, able to get around the restrictions, the legal restrictions that Microsoft normally puts on security breaches.
0: All right. Links in the show notes if you want more. Uh, Three former NSA employees have been fined hundreds of thousands of dollars by the U.S. Department of Justice for helping develop hacking tools for a company called Dark Matter, which is based in the United Arab Emirates, or UAE. The Justice Department said the three violated export controls that require companies and individuals to, quote, obtain a special license from the State Department's Directorate of Defense Trade Controls before providing defense-related services to a foreign government, end quote. And that comes from a story in The Record.
1: So what this, what this boils down to and the angle that I want to take on here for the, the, the network break audience is if you are a security professional or a networking professional and you go to work for a foreign company that is attached to a foreign government and part of that foreign company's business is to hack back on the US government, you are in breach of US law. So you are not free to pursue employment that you may choose to have because the US government will say you are conducting activities that are harmful to the US government and therefore that's a criminal activity. It turns out that you actually have to obtain a license. Now, even if you obtain a license to go and do this type of stuff overseas, that doesn't um, absolve you from criminal responsibility. So they can still, basically, you're just registering the government saying, I'm going to work for, you know, UK's MI6 as a contractor. But if you do something that hacks back on the US government, they can still take you to court and declare you a criminal and put you in jail, which is really interesting. Uh, That is not historically a position that we've seen, which is governments registering citizens as uh, some sort of cyber weapon and subject to arms export controls.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting uh, legal gray area on what a U.S. citizen can and can't do in terms of uh, employment. I have to wonder with folks coming out of the NSA that they might be more aware of sort of rules and restrictions around this. I don't know. Uh, there's a couple of Rogers articles that go into more detail about it. Uh, and it does sound like it is very complicated about what you're allowed to do and not to do. And also the fact that, you know, uh, one of the employees who started this was actually working for a U.S. contractor that uh contracted with uh this other this uae company so there's also sort of Mm. other legal gray areas like is this a u.s company is it a uae company what's the line
1: yeah it feels like if you were the person involved you'd sort of say oh well i'm working for a company i'm not actually being recruited by the uae government right but then the company was working for the uae government right the uae government was directing them to attack u.s citizens
0: Yes. So there was some plausible deniability where the employee could say, I didn't know that that tool I was developing was being used against a political dissident or a foreign government.
1: Yeah, but they actually did know. The (laughs) the general assumption is that they (laughs) knew exactly what they were doing. They could probably not like you couldn't clearly make a line. But Dark Matter was about creating these tools and they were selling them to the UAE government who had a long term reputation for doing exactly this. Right. Um. And it's a fair, you know, the UAE would have been ringing up for tech support and telling them what they're doing. So um, that's a pretty thin argument. I think the chan- I think the thing here is that if you are doing this type of work, you need to think about the moral implications. And if it feels wrong, they actually may be backed up by law that makes it illegal. So I think it would have been fairly immoral to take money to work in the united arab emirates for a company to develop hacking tools mm-hmm. that these and then these people sort of knew what they were doing and they were us intelligence community these people come from right. inside the system right? right coming from the nsa i think
0: it would be hard to to say well i didn't really know what was going on
1: that's yeah that's right It's be one quite- thing for you and me to sort of go over there and say like well i'm just making the money i'm just doing what i'm told and that's right Right, (laughs) you know, maybe, maybe that's that's a better defense. Right, but you know, if we sort of, if you go over there and you're an NSA security intelligence professional, and you're taking your expertise to another country, mm, that's pretty. That's that's really not that. Anyway, I just thought that if you're interested in reading the judgment, it's not too bad. It's about ten pages long, and it's not entirely unreadable. Or you can read the record article. The record.media, which is their website, their reporting on the thing makes it a lot easier. And there's a bunch of other links and you'll sort of read it and you'll go like, yeah, okay. So freedom, you know, once you go and work for the security apparatus, freedom is, you know, not actually all that free. That's right. There may be some restrictions on what
0: you can do. Yeah.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: Yeah, so lots of links if you want to check it out. It's an interesting story with a lot of complex dimensions. Uh, yeah. Just a quick note to tell you about Extreme Networks. We talked about how they had acquired Ipanema Networks. Uh, that acquisition has officially closed now, and they're adding uh, SD WAN to Extreme's portfolio via the Ipanema Networks acquisition.
1: Yeah, we speculated that this was a disposal, that Ipanema was getting this out of the company as quickly as possible. And given the speed at which this deal was announced and then closed, I think that confirms my view that this mm-hmm. was. You know, this doesn't fit our business model. Let's get it out of here as quickly as possible. Um, but I remain very positive that about extreme getting into SD WAN, I think it's a natural complement to the brand, you know, everything that we just said about the the Del research at the top applies here. Extreme exactly. should have an SD WAN. It's a natural complement to their branch LAN and WAN technology. And if they can unify it together, then I think they could go to their existing customer base and get solid sales for that for their business. Agreed.
0: All right, a last story for the day. U.S. mobile provider T-Mobile is shutting down its 3G network as of July 1st, 2022, according to news reports, and also setting dates for the retirement of other older uh, mobile systems.
1: Well, this is confusing uh, in the U.S. because T-Mobile acquired Sprint. DISH networks. Sprint, and Dish, yes, right? DISH and Sprint. Yeah. DISH and Sprint, and there's confusion about which networks and the articles that I've read aren't entirely clear, but my understanding is it's the Sprint 3G network which is being shut down. So, and I believe that what's actually happening is um, they're moving all of the Sprint 3G customers onto T-Mobile infrastructure, and all of the old Sprint infrastructure is just being turned off and dismantled, uh-huh. or being refit, maybe. Who knows? Um, but I think the point here is is that uh, 3G, 4G, 5G is not necessarily forever. We often think about mobile infrastructure as being perennial, something that's always around. We talk about it as being always on bandwidth. But if you have a uh you know, a router with a 3G interface from five years ago, you could be up for a refresh if that if your new provider doesn't use the same 3G um, mechanisms, or you may have to switch from one product, at the very least, from one provider to another, change the SIM uh, potentially, or you may even have to replace the entire device.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, I think the other issue is that uh, the consolidation in the U.S. of mobile communications isn't necessarily great for everyone because it's less competition and also T-Mobile can come along and say, you know, that phone you just bought that was on the Sprint network, it's not going to work in, you know, two mm. years and you might have to buy another
1: one. I don't think that'll be too much of an issue because they what they're closing down is the CDMA, which is very legacy. Mm-hmm. That was the uh, technology which was proprietary to the U.S., and only used in the us and everybody else in the world used 3g not cdma uh-huh. um, and sprint was one of the companies that doubled down with qualcomm and their proprietary cdma 3g i see uh, but they're also shutting down parts of their lte network now lte is the 3g standards lte is also part of 4g but there's various sub so it's very confusing hard to make sense of if you've got a mobile 3g or a sprint 3g service you yeah, probably want to get in contact with your provider to nut out the details. That's right.
0: All right, that does wrap up the news. Stick around for our tech bytes conversation with Nokia. We're talking about building a data center fabric with EVPN that's coming right up. On today's Tech bytes podcast, sponsored by Nokia, we dive into data center networking and EVPN. Nokia's SR Linux operating system can help you build a data center fabric with EVPN. And in this episode, we're going to discuss how Nokia operationalizes that protocol. Our guest is Jorge Rabadan. He is Senior Product Land Manager at Nokia. Jorge, welcome to the podcast. So what are some of the key features Nokia sees as relevant to implementing EVPN in data center networks?
2: I would say EVPN provides uh, intra and inter-subnet connectivity besides uh, some other things. So that is valid for EVPN in the wide area network, but also the data center. But I would say in in the data center, first off, or the feature of number zero, it's a good uh, multi-protocol BGP implementation. So EVPN is based on multi-protocol BGP. So You're BGP. talking
1: about using EVPN in the WAN as well as the data center?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Actually, the first uh, specification for EVPN was meant to be for uh, the WAN as a replacement for VPLS.
1: Now, that's not something that we hear discussed a lot. Now, I know that... Nokia has been heavily involved in the EVPN standards. It's something that we'll talk about in a little bit. But that idea that Nokia is looking to unify the data center and the WAN is a, is a differentiator. It is something that's unique to Nokia, I think.
2: That is correct, Greg. So uh, where we shine is actually on all the uh, DC and WAN integration features. We are able to stitch any WAN technology to EVPN and VXLAN in the data center.
1: That must mean that your gateway functionality is really advanced or in some way superior to most other implementations.
2: I believe so. Uh, Based on our discussions with uh, customers and other vendors and and operators in general. Yeah, Mm. I, I would say so.
0: Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, folks may not be familiar with the SR Linux Network OS, but you've taken some pains to make sure you've got a solid EVPN and BGP stack inside that OS.
2: So absolutely. So uh, Service Router Operating System, uh, you know, we've been developing uh, BGP for uh, many years and uh, we've been optimizing BGP for scale, for uh, stability, and also for features, right? We took the BGP stack to SR Linux, and uh, all the benefits in you know, all those years of experience and, and stability and scale, uh, now we can benefit of it in the data center with SR Linux as well.
0: And why do you think, what is it about EVPN we heard about usually in conjunction with VXLAN that folks are looking to this for a data center fabric?
2: So the beginning people started to use VXLAN uh, in overlay data centers uh, to provide, a you know, layer two and layer three connectivity, but um, the, the first implementations were based on flood and learn. And uh, it came with a number of issues. So EVPN, um, you know, provided uh, at the beginning, uh, provided the, uh, the discovery of the remote VTEPs and also the distribution of the, the Macs and the IPs in the control plane, right? To avoid all the bad side effects of the flood and learn. So that was the, the beginning. Over the, uh, the years also, uh, EVPN added uh, many more functionality and, and features. So EVPN is also used because of the the mobility features, the security, uh, multi-homing, and also the DC and WAN integration.
1: That is not something that we normally hear from other vendors. Now, obviously, EVPN builds on the BGP side in the sense that we use the BGP protocol to carry the control plane or the configuration state of the EVPN configurations. The the features that Nokia is bringing in SRS are about this uh, idea of multi-homing, the idea that you want to say we recognize that having multi-homing in the network that there's multiple paths and that the edge connectivity can be different is actually differentiated when you say all active multi-homing for L2L3 connectivity what does that mean
2: what it means is that we can use all the uh, the links available to send traffic uh, what it means is that a, a you know a server or a compute can be multi-home to many leaf switches it's not mm-hmm. only two like in the, the traditional m m lag uh, you know, proprietary uh, proprietary implementations uh, here. The um, you know the C side can be multi-homed to as many leaves as, as you want, and uh, you can you can use all the paths in both directions, the upstream and downstream. So from the server uh, to the rest of the network, and from the rest of the network to the server. So that is all active multi-homing.
1: And that. That's not something that everybody else does. Is that a proprietary feature or is it just something that's not, is it not part of the standards process? It's just a feature that, you know, edge nodes are connected to the network, servers, desktops, you know, hosts, firewalls, whatever. And this idea that all active multi-homing at the edge of the network is just a feature that doesn't need standards.
2: No, it's actually fully uh, standard. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, there is this um, uh, perception that, uh, you know, EVPN does not interoperate uh, across different vendors. Mm. And then the the right question is what options uh, do you implement in your EVPN, right? Because it's uh, pretty much everything is standardized that is what the uh, the approach that we took in the IETF um we as Nokia along with uh, you know uh, mostly Cisco and Juniper mm-hmm. we try to standardize every single EVPN feature now it doesn't mean that all the vendors will support all the options and all the uh, the standards right so mm-hmm. evpn is not a single protocol it's more like a framework right so uh absolutely it's a standard so what it may happen is that a particular vendor not, does not support it yet right right you, okay yeah if you find a couple of, of vendors supporting this yeah I should integrate
1: so this idea of all active multi-homing is a standard but not all the vendors might have implemented it or even if they have they might not have implemented on all the different hardware platforms or or the software platforms because it's a software feature That's by correct. and large. And quite often some vendors have multiple hardware platforms and this feature is available on this one, but not on that one or that one. And sometimes it gets very confusing in the thing. I wanted to move on to the Nokia fabric services system. Now this is the software, the SDN controller that you have that integrates the data center configuration and operations and simplifies it down a lot. Is that working with these features as well?
2: yeah so i must say that evpn was conceived uh, for automation from day one right mm. so if you go through the uh, the baseline uh, evpn specification uh you know many of the parameters that you need to configure they can auto derive from some others that will be in the uh, in the switch anyway right mm-hmm. things like the route distinguishers route targets uh, ethernet segment identifiers and all, all those uh, things that are specific to EVPN. but the fabric service system takes the automation to the next level it really uses this abstract intent based approach where uh, allow the operator to deal only with the constructs that are relevant to the dc applications so they don't need to to know about uh what a route distinguisher is or a route target they just need to to deal with subnets uh, gateway ip addresses and attachment points so this is one of the aspects that you know the fabric services system uh, brings to the table and the second aspect is also the uh, observability. So, you know, through the uh, all the telemetry that FSS uh, provides, the Fabric Services System, you, you have, um, you know, all the, the visibility, FSS uh, becomes this single pane of glass through which you can operate, see all the information hmm. of your entire data center.
1: So, because the key here is that EVPN gets complicated fast at the CLI, because there's tens, even hundreds of lines of configuration about the vxlan ids and the the bds and the ipfirf parameters and the bgp configuration it gets pretty complex pretty quickly and it's it's not that you can't do it at the CLO, but I do think it's becoming impractical. Do you agree with that? Like the use of Yang models configuration and using intent?
2: It's a reality, not... Yeah, no, I fully agree with that statement. Again, EVPN can be uh, basic. You may want to just have, uh, you know, layer two, layer three connectivity. And that requires just a few commands. But as you start adding things like a multi-homing and uh, you know multicast and optimizations and uh, layer three stuff, yeah, it can actually um, add a more complexity, more uh, CLI commands. And here is where, you know, uh, the Fabric Services system uh, can actually help.
0: And just so I'm clear, Fabric Services system is a separate piece of software running maybe outside the data center on a server, or where does it sit?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it runs in the server. Yeah, I mean, it is not fully required for your uh, data center with SR Linux uh, uh, to function, but it's the, uh, again, the the way to take the automation to the next level.
0: Okay, so if I'm running the Nokia OS on my switches, I can then go to more of an intent-based model or a software-defined model by bringing in the Fabric Services system as well.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And the Fabric Services, now we've talked a lot in Packet Pushes over the last five or six years about intent-based networking controllers, but looking back, it feels like intent-based networking or this, this idea of we take your intent and map it onto the network is really just a standard feature it's not special is that kind of how you look at it or am i missing something
2: it's not a special feature in the sense that it uh makes an abstraction of all the uh the evpn specific things and uh, creates something abstract that the operator can actually understand mm. but uh, i mean there is there is nothing proprietary here right all the interfaces are open if if that is what you are asking
0: now i also understand nokia has been involved with interoperability testing particularly around evpn can you tell us more about you know, you're working with other vendors and uh standards bodies to make sure that your implementation will will work in a in a you know, i guess brownfield environment or with other vendors os's
2: yeah absolutely so um Uh, So something remarkable that has happened with uh, this technology with uh, EVPN that I haven't seen in in other uh, technologies is that, again, from day one, um, we we created in the IETF uh, a very, uh, very nice uh, working group with multiple vendors and mostly, uh, yeah, Nokia, uh, uh, sorry, um, Juniper and Cisco. Uh, we created a team. And as I said, we wanted to standardize uh, every single EVPN feature. So one of the advantages or strengths of EVPN is uh, its extensibility. So um, EVPN started in uh, RFC 7432. And again, the initial idea was just to replace a VPLS for something more uh, optimum and uh, efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the good thing that we did about EVPN is that we created this uh, concept of the route types. So in EVPN, yes, we we send uh, you know routes in BGP, BGP routes, but those can have a, a type, right? And depending on the type, the semantics mm-hmm. are different, and you use them for a different uh, service, right? So, after that initial baseline uh, standard document, we, we worked on uh, many, many other extensions. And uh, up to date, uh, I think we, we have more than, I don't know, 30, 35 standard documents that are extensions of the original EVPN. So, immediately after the first uh, RFC, we saw that, uh, hey, we, we need to use this in the data center because of all the advantages. So, let's uh, make it work with VXLAN and that, it, that was the RFC 8365. But not only that, uh, from that point on, we started with many other, uh, you know, uh, extensions, mm. multi homing and many other features, including also layer three, etc.
1: So that feels like a lot of the complexity around EVPN and the things that make it incompatible between vendors is literally these additions and enhancements and extensions to EVPN that have come online and, Uh, You know, to use the famous quote, the future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. So just because something's been standardized doesn't necessarily mean that it's all implemented and in a stable state. So if you have interoperability problems, what do you do? How do you know it's interoperable?
2: You're absolutely right. The uh, the issue here is not that the standards are wrongly written or, you know, EGPN does not interpret The the issue really is that there are so many different extensions and options that uh, you cannot expect all the vendors to implement every single option and and feature. And actually, one of the greatest uh, things that we've seen uh, here is the um, uh, the testing that we've been doing uh, across different vendors at the EANTC, the Mm -hmm. European... uh,
1: national testing national. center yeah. Yeah, advanced yeah. national something
2: like that advanced yeah. uh, network testing center yeah so here basically they um they bring together a bunch of vendors and they they put them to test uh, you know features networking features and in particular they've been doing this for evpn and mm-hmm. also for segment routing and uh, for evpn uh, i think the first time that i i went to the eantc vpn testing that was back in 2015 And uh, at that time, uh, I can tell you, it was only uh, three vendors like uh, Nokia, Juniper, and Cisco testing uh, basic, very uh, basic EVPN uh, connectivity. Mm -hmm. and Many, many things didn't work. Uh, Some things work. And that was the beginning, right? But over the years, we've seen many, many more vendors adding options, not in EVPN and I, I can tell you um, even the um, so the, over the last year and even this year we've seen up to 10 12 vendors uh, already testing together uh, evpn uh, you know layer 2 layer 3 multi-homing features and then success so there's
1: there's hope for the future that we might actually get interoperable evpn as time goes by.
2: It's already a reality for many, many features. Yeah. Um, still, the, uh, of course, the, the latest uh, features uh, in the IETF, the latest uh, drafts. Yeah, you will see only a couple of three vendors implementing them. Mm-hmm. But that's why the uh, this event or the, um, you know, the industry testing or public testing of uh, features is important. It's, it's the way we we find, uh, you know, that certain things in the standards are not, uh, you know, properly written. Some things mm-hmm. are actually feedback for the uh, for the standards as well. And we can rewrite those standards based on the testing, go back to the next year and, and test again and make sure that now it works and we all have the same interpretation.
0: So is the takeaway here that if I'm thinking about maybe bringing Nokia into an existing data center environment, I should be somewhat confident that I can still attach a Nokia device to an existing EVP and fabric?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And there is public uh, white papers where you can see actually what things uh, uh, can work across uh, uh, multiple vendors including Nokia, of course. So, your
1: one final point I wanted to talk about. The interesting part here is that I can actually run SR Linux in a sandbox, and I can actually test the fabric services system against the sandbox and actually validate a lot of stuff. And that is un- that is not something we've normally seen. Is that something that customers
2: want? We come across customers, and uh, I think that's a pretty uh, normal way of operating. Um, they really want to test things uh, to avoid human errors and errors. Uh, they want to test uh, things at scale. So you know the, um, the fabric services system sandbox allows you to recreate your your scenario to have to all your uh, your lead switches interconnected mm. to your entire fabric and to to put on the, uh, the service the EVPN workloads that you want to uh, to put in place and make sure that everything works before you actually in, uh, deploy the network.
1: Because that feature to me, it sounds like if I wanted to know how the configuration will work and does the, does the intent do what I wanted to do and I want to validate the CLI, that feels really comfortable to me that I can actually see it going in. And it means really there's only the hardware-software interaction that remains to be an area of uncertainty, which is a good step forward.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you're
1: correct.
0: All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. Uh, thank you, Jorge, for joining us. And thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. If you want to find out more, just head over to Nokia.com and search for SR Linux and the Fabric Services System. We'll also have links in the show notes where you can get more details. In the meantime, uh, if you uh, like this show, we've got many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.